Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. You, in what, 2016, you had this post with Jonathan LeBeau, like yeah. the sort of yeah. deep dive on the digital health space. Yeah. And I think then, like in the in-between, maybe there's a little bit of disillusionment or maybe it's like a little bit harder than than you envisioned. Or I'm, I'm curious, and then most recently you've come out with a, sort of another digital healthcare big post. I'm curious how you've sort of tracked the space over the years, how this how the space has evolved, how you've sort of interpreted it from an investment perspective, and what has excited you and, and what hasn't excited you. When When Jonathan and I wrote that blog post, it was really much inspired by our are both funds invested in figure one. Yeah. And so, and he ended up joining figure one. Yeah. And then yeah. he ended up joining figure one. He was the, he was the director of product there. Um, cause he fell in love with the company just like we did. Right. So, and this was sort of like a core for doctors or what was it? Yeah. It was a, they hate when I say this <laughs> analogy, but it was an Instagram for doctors. Right. Cool. So the whole idea is that doctors do this already. They yeah. find interesting cases, whether it's like a really nasty looking thumb or, you know, uh, a broken foot and they want to send it to their friends. Yeah. And there at the time was no way to do this in a HIPAA compliant way. So you would either email it, text it to your buddies, send it through Dropbox, all violating any HIPAA. So the founder um, is a doctor named Josh Landy in Toronto. And he decided like, I want to build a social network to allow people to share images because the other beautiful thing about a social network is now it's not just one to one. It's now one to or many to many. Right. And there was a bigger vision that we could even diagnose cases together because there are certain cases that you see in, in Toronto, for example, um, that are super rare, but maybe super common in Asia. Right. So bridging the, the global, I guess gaps in knowledge right. with particular illnesses and, and conditions was a, was a big vision that we had. And so we were super inspired by this when we wrote this blog post in, I guess, 2016, you said? Seems like even longer ago, but in 2016. And um, what excited us about it was that we felt that figure one had the potential to disrupt healthcare from a bottoms up, yeah. with a bottoms up approach. So the idea of, you know, permissionless innovation where we could have doctors sharing information and knowledge within the hospital walls without getting the hospital's permission. And that was the thesis that we had for a while. Could we find other figure ones? And I think that between that time and I would say 2018, maybe two years have gone by the consumerization of, of um, healthcare just wasn't quite there yet. Right. But recently, and more so now than ever, because we want to empower everyone and everyone has you know this device in their pocket, it's starting to be super clear that there are ways in which we can empower consumers directly, right? Yeah. And so I think for us, the only reason we kind of shied away from investing was because everything looked very enterprise healthcare yeah oriented and like to be honest as a canadian now turn american i just didn't know the american system well enough like i do yeah. now so it's a different story but that's why we took a little bit of a, totally. a pause we were right. still looking right 
Um, but and we just didn't know how enterprise healthcare differentiates with one yeah. another. And so let's say more about it in terms of what would the other figure ones and first, just a quick note on the figure, the idea of sort of wisdom of the crowds, James Courier said in 2007, 2008 or something, he made this startup that tried to be like Wikipedia for healthcare, but he, they needed to only go through experts and they partnered with all of the, you know, big sort of hospitals and stuff. And there was some India competitor that just made it open and anyone can cont- contribute and that company ended up smoking them. So just the, the idea of like the wisdom of, of, of the crowds and that you don't always have to go just through, through the experts, even in something like healthcare. So I'm curious where you saw the opportunity for more figure ones and more sort of uh, opportunities for users to control their healthcare or bottoms up. And then also just to reflect on what we have seen, what, what's been interesting the last couple of years or from 2016, 2018, Nurex, or there was a sort of yeah, yeah. like Nurex for X or sort of all these different competitors in the pill pack, et cetera, in that space. And then I guess there was one medical and, and one medical for X and sort of tr- people trying to subdivide by, by disease and create either sort of a full stack solution or sort of a, you know, a, a target point solution. Right. Just think that more and more so everyone's really recognizing how expensive healthcare is, yeah. right? And, and in the past it was so much control or even, even so now it's so much controlled or what we think we can get in terms of healthcare is controlled by what payers dictate that we can, we can use, right? Yeah. In terms of services and stuff. So what we're starting to see is this unbundling of healthcare, whether it's yeah. this Nurex, which is okay. I can, I can pay a subscription to get my birth control and not have to go through my payer, which is just so, and, and get a different provider because it's just so laborious, right? I always say in healthcare, it's just so difficult to navigate if you don't have time, if you don't have capital and you don't have patience, right? Yeah. And, and knowledge. Yeah. And most people just don't have all that time and all that patience and all that capital and all that knowledge, right? So that's why we're starting to see this unbundling effect because now the the value add is or the value proposition is very clear and the price is also very clear so now i know if i want to get a birth control pill i'm going to pay $15 a month or $15 a year or whatever is the case whereas when you go through the healthcare system you don't really know what you're paying or how much you're paying for and why um, so I think that's what we're starting to see. And so we've made some investments also like, um, in a company called Scanwell, which is an at home UTI test kit. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that if somebody has a bladder infection or a UTI nowadays, they have to go to urgent care yeah. and do a sample pee or pee in a cup, get their results back. And then the doctor will tell you yes or no, whether or not you have a UTI. And if you do, they'll then write your prescription, right? So that experience, super, it's a super standard protocol, but can cost anywhere between, you know, $200 and $300, yeah. even if you have insurance. And the only reason that it costs this much is because you have to go to the doctor's office because the treatment is an antibiotic, which can't be administered over the right. counter, right? So what Scanwell is now doing is say, hey, like, let us save you time, pee on a little strip at home. Use your phone to do the urinalysis with colorimetry, and it will tell you whether or not you have a UTI. And if you do, we'll hook you up with a telehealth provider who will consult super quickly, wire your prescription to your local pharmacy, and just like that, within 10, 15 minutes, you will have relief immediately, right? Yeah. And that costs $30 versus $300. Right. So the cost, the magnitude is just extremely different. And again, empowering the, the patient or the end user it's very clear what the pricing is. It's very clear what the value proposition is. And it's not as muddled as if we were to go through the whole healthcare system. Yeah. 
you, you also have extensive data science background, right? PhD in data science? Peach, PhD in data science, yeah. Although I'm not, I haven't been a data scientist right. in like eight years, so it's super rusty. <laughs> I just say that to say that, um, are you excited at all about, or how you been thinking about bi- biotech or sort of more on the bio side of? We haven't thought too much about bio only because um, unlike software, we just haven't figured out what the same kind of scale looks like. Yeah. But I know that there are a lot of amazing funds out there that are are thinking about that, especially like Andreessen Horowitz, because they yeah. their bio fund just writes and comes up with amazing content on how they're thinking. So totally. for to them for that kind yeah. of thought leadership. But for us right now, I think we're we're comfortable with investing in companies that have a bio sample element to it. Yeah. But technology or like software is a heavy component of um of scale. Totally. So what is your request for startups within healthcare in terms of the things that you're, have you been excited in fertility or, or what are this, yeah. the subspaces or things that you are looking to see more of? I actually wrote a blog post about, uh, about femtech because I went yeah, through please. the whole, uh, egg freezing process last year. Um, but we can, the, I, I don't know exactly, um, how we can make this more affordable yeah. for everyone. So you know, I, I really admire, there are some startups out there. Modern fertility. Yeah. Carrot. Yeah. So modern fertility carrot, they're, they're thinking about like, how do we, how do we educate women to know what their fertility is like? How do we, how do we sponsor and help them pay and finance these yeah. treatments? But ultimately I would love, and I don't know how we as VCs fund this, but I would love to see underlying any kind of like changes in the technology of how we can egg freeze more affordably. Yeah. Right. Like the underlying tech. I don't know if it's possible, but that's, that's what I'm curious about. Um, but in the meantime, bridging that gap and educating women, um, helping women finance these, um, this treatment is, is great. That's what we can do. But other areas, um, I'm pretty bullish about digital therapeutics. Mm, I think that, yeah, I think that drugs sometimes can cause more harm than good. Uh, I think that, so I think being able to educate people or, or help people through like cognitive behavioral therapy to change their lifestyle, to treat certain conditions as possible. So like Amada Health. Amada with the X. diabetes. Yeah. yeah. Hinge, was it Hinge Health that just um, announced they had this big founding round dealing with mus- musculoskeletal, yeah. muscular skeleton pain. Oh, I don't even say this wrong. Right. But uh, with pain yeah. in general. Um, so I think there are opportunities there, especially around like mental health specifically. I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy is that, but digital therapeutics is exciting. I, you know, a lot of people will probably cringe when I say patient social networks, but I just, but what's, you know, we've seen patients like me in the past chronology. And I think that there might be a new generation of these social networks designed for patients, because I think like the younger generation and my generation are sharing a lot more on yeah. social media, not in, and and are not as embarrassed or there's no stigma to yeah. having a condition. I think they realize the power of the crowd, like you right. said, right? So the more I, I share, maybe the more the more comfort I'm going to get, but also the more help that I might be able to draw, right. because now everyone knows that they're not alone because I also have, I might have what they have. Right. We have a company called RDMD that's doing a version of that for rare disease patients. Yeah. Aggregating the the community aspect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, it's the stigma that maybe our parents' generation felt or, you know, the fear 
think people own their conditions now. It's right. you, it, it's what makes them uniquely them. And our generation really, I think with our generation, it, that that's one thing that we strive for, like to be unique. It's like you were always trying to show our personal side, right? right. Yeah. And what about the more full stack plays, the sort of, you know, one medical for musculoskeletal conditions or one medical for women's, you know, Tia is a company doing one medical for mm-hmm. women's health, but mm-hmm. sort of, or, you know, forward was <laughs> a better, better, like, what do you think about these, these sort of physical plays as well? The physical office plays? Yeah. yeah they, they combine digital and, and brick and mortar. I think there's, I think there's always reason yeah. to have, um, you know, the brick and mortar piece, right? I think the question for me around these brick and mortars is always like more and more so. So with one medical, for example, a lot of it is primary care, right? And so I'm a firm believer that over time, primary care is something that we can probably deliver over telehealth, right? Just over over the computer, over our phones. Um, So I'm interested to see how they morph. Do they go into different do they create specialty clinics right in the same way that tia has one or or another another company might have um and then in which case you have to ask the question like are these clinics are these vertical clinics a big enough of a market for yeah for each um specialty that's being offered totally yeah and did you do any of these good rx pill pack any of these types of companies i'm curious how you make sense of how they differentiate? I guess pillback sold, but where, where do these oh, go? We invest. Yeah, what's the, there was the pharmacy one. I can't remember. But yeah, these like new age pharmacy. We didn't. We didn't invest in any of those companies, and I think a part of it was um, a. They were a little bit before our time, right? And and b. It's it's. I'm just really curious, like how they even differentiate over yeah. time, right? But yeah. I, I guess I just don't have the the specialty in that totally. that reign. It's yeah. probably why I stay away. I get. I was very nervous about like enterprise. Yeah. Like healthcare enterprise companies, because it's not very clear how like this OR software is different from this other one and so on. Totally. What are some of the other spaces you've done sort of deep dives on or you spent most of your time? I've been at uh, version one for four years now, five years now? Oh, six and a half. Six and a half. (laughs) Six and a half years now. What what are the spaces uh, that you've you've spent time? uh, You did this incredible deep dive in marketplaces. You did another one in consumer social. These are seminal, seminal pieces. What what are spaces that you've sort of gone down to deep the rabbit hole different times if you're some crypto you did with Lolly? Yeah, a little bit. Well, my partner, Boris, and now my colleague, Max, they're pretty deep into to crypto. The, the biggest deep dive that I keep on going down is healthcare because yeah. I just think that it is the one thing that boggles my mind living in this country where coming from Canada, it's just surprising that in the U.S. healthcare is not a basic right. And I know that not a lot of people, not everyone will believe like or have share that same value, but it's just it's just so critical to everything that we do in our life. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so that's why I spent a lot of my time there and then like marketplaces are more broad. Right. But certainly there are categories within marketplaces that yeah. we get real, that we start digging into. Right. So I think there are still opportunities in consumer marketplaces, but certainly B2B is pretty untapped as we're trying to figure out what are the characteristics that make a B2B marketplace really flourish or get to get the virtuous cycle going. And because I don't think that the playbook for a B2B marketplace is as clear as say like a consumer one. Yeah. Right. So I think, so that's one area we look at. 
I want to focus on healthcare marketplace, actually. The broader question is, when do you need expertise versus not? So an example here is, is therapists. Um, so therapists, no. I would say that some, you mentioned mental health, some percentage of, of therapists, certainly when I went to therapists, it was mostly someone to listen to me. Mm-hmm. And I ended up thinking like, wow, I'm paying you know, 150 bucks, 200, whatever it is. I could get someone to pay like 20 bucks or 30 bucks, and it might be just as good for what I was seeking for in a therapist. And I'm some fraction of the overall population. I don't know if I'm 10%. I don't know if I'm 50%. But uh, I was curious if you could unbundle, you know, seven cups of tea has tried this. Oh, yeah. But um, like that type of thing. And you make customer support people or um, college students who are good listeners. Yeah. And you almost, I don't know if you, if you call it almost a new thing. But uh, I'm curious what you think about that idea. Um, and then the broader thing of when do you need experts, train experts who cost a lot versus can you disrupt something with wisdom of the crowds or just, you know, a, a new underclass. Uh, when you talk to your therapist, do you value the feedback that he or she gives you? She doesn't give me much. She doesn't give you much. <laughs> mostly ask questions. She mostly asks questions. And so how do you, how do you as a patient measure the efficacy of that session? Date. I mean, it'd be great if or like, it's just how you feel. Like when yeah, you, sort of. you just feel better. Yeah. I mean, I stopped doing it. So I'm not the, you know, and so yeah, basically I feel like, oh, I, I got to work out or something like a, a meaning I like exalt, I shared a lot of things and thus I feel better, but it would be great if they tracked like, Hey, here's where you were last, like there's some data collection or mood something or, or something that gave me better indication that I was improving on some, some axis, but it did seem yeah, it didn't seem, and maybe and hey, oftentimes you need to go work with a few therapists before you find the great one. If she listens to this, I think you're great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. But, um, but yeah, I think I think the the whole concept of mental is just so broad. Yeah. Right, and I think that I guess peer to peer marketplaces work, but it can't be like super super broad, right? Yeah. So sometimes it's like, hey, I'm 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 feeling a lot of anxiety around school. So you could build probably a marketplace right. where there's like mentorship and, yeah. and and stuff like that. Or like breakups or something. Break, yeah, exactly. So I think it has to be like super specific. Alcoholics Anonymous for Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, right? <laughs> um, but I think it's challenging when it's just, hey, I'm just feeling stressed yeah. about life or whatever. I think it has to be more targeted in totally. order to in order to find to connect the right peers. Right. And the right kind of listener to you. Let's say an Alcoholics Anonymous marketplace yeah. or a Peter Brown marketplace or a breakup. Like how would some specific issue, what would need to be true for, for you to want to make an investment in a company like that? Like what, in this broader question of what are the most important metrics or things you look for in, in these types of marketplaces? Things like when I think about a healthcare or any, any kind of healthcare marketplace, right? Or any marketplace, not just a healthcare marketplace. There's probably a couple of, factors that really matter. So the big thing, especially in mental health is this element of trust. Yeah. Right. And so if I seek you, Eric, as my therapist, yeah. and I really enjoy working with you, there's very little incentive for me yeah, to, to ever, yeah, to ever, to go back to the marketplace, yeah, okay. right? Like we can just continue our relationship off platform oh, yeah. So I think that's that's probably the biggest question I have around mental health is what what keeps people on the pl- is it is it really a marketplace or is it lead gen yeah. for the that particular therapist? I have the same idea around healthcare. Oh, sorry, H- homeschool. Homeschool. Yeah. yeah. Is it you find some like could there be an Airbnb for homeschool, for example? Right. Um, I know a bunch of people homeschool their kids and would enjoy homeschooling other kids, but is that something that once you find it, you're done or? 
is there sort of a repeat? Is there a repeat? Yeah. And, and not only just like that, the, and the repeat is typically driven by a desire to discover something new Yeah. or not even a desire, but like a a necessity to, right. Yeah. So that's, that's something I think a lot about with, with, with mental health is how do we move beyond lead gen and having it built into a marketplace because the service being provided while on the outside looking in as a commodity, every, every relationship is so unique between the demand side and the supply side. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, there are versions of these consumer marketplaces that have never sort of worked at scale, like clarity FM was sort of this Mm -hmm. advisor marketplace. Like I have Mm -hmm. expertise and you'd think that it could work, right? Like, People need advice on all sorts of things. And it's worked on, I guess, what GLG is on sort of the B2B side. But I imagine what would need to be true for a consumer marketplace like that to work? Or another example, I just got pitched this recently, it was a compelling founder, sort of a speaker marketplace, almost like, uh, imagine like, um, it doesn't have to be physical, but like a soul cycle or Barry's bootcamp for learning. Um, and so you, you get different sort of speakers and you'd, uh, they'd put like sessions together. And, and the idea was that, um, people would host them in their houses, but they don't have to be out school. Like, did you guys do out school? We didn't do out school, but I know yeah. about yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's for we I did guess. clarity. <laughs> you did clarity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, what needs to be true for some of these sort of like learning or expertise consumer marketplaces to to work? You think? So, I don't know if it necessarily applies for like out school per se, but the key is really unlocking that supply consistently yeah. and making sure you don't burn out that supply, right? Yeah. So, I think in the clarity's case, for example. Um, there are more people who want advice than there are people who want to give that advice, the same advice constantly, right? So how do you make it worthwhile for a supply to keep giving, to keep listening in the case of mental health? Um, because sometimes like the money piece is not enough. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Earn.com tried this with a different angle, which it was like an email marketplace. Like, um, but it's never going to be worth like the people you want to reach out to. They're not going to like take money to, <laughs> to right. respond. Like the just dynamics are a little, but then like supply is inconsistent. Yeah. Right. When, and so that, I think that's the hard part, right? Right. It's always around the supply. Yeah. Um, when there's such an imbalance in the marketplace, right. Um, how do you keep supply engaged, consistent, yeah. um, on platform? Right. Not exhausted. <laughs> yeah. So we've mentioned some questions that you ask when you're evaluating a, a marketplace business, i.e., is it a lead gen business or is it real marketplace? Uh, is the supply, um, are you giving them a good experience? Uh, can you, can you get them? Uh, what are other questions that you make sure to ask or things that are really important that separate some marketplaces that are worth investing in versus, versus ones that aren't? I mean, on the demand side, definitely the frequency of use and that yeah. need to discover. Right. Right. I think product marketplaces are, you know, conceptually easier to understand, right? Because on the one hand, you have all these vendors that are selling different kinds of products that that uh, demand side will want to buy. I think what becomes challenging really is on the supply side of things. So on the product side of things, it can be like you can be selling commodities and in services businesses, most people don't really sell commodities so it comes back to the whole like services marketplaces are really really hard and that's why probably in like mental health and all that stuff like outside of i mean now people are like okay uber is not a marketplace it's a managed marketplace yeah but like i think it's really hard to build a services marketplace because the service has to be a commodity and so few things 
on the service side are where you don't value like where the experience is pretty uniform. Yeah. Depend regardless of who the provider is. Is it thumbtack or is it like, would you have ever invested in a thumbtack vertical versus horizontal? Yeah, we looked at, I mean, I've, I've, we've looked at equivalents of thumbtack. Not, I don't think, I don't even know if Boris looked at thumbtack, but, but, um, in, in that case, the frequency use case is not high enough. Yeah. And so I think that because, and, and, the delivery of the service is offline. Yeah. And so there's money money exchanged ahead of the service being delivered. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. The deli- and then if we wait until after the the service is delivered, then the supply might just charge yeah. the the demand in person or directly off yeah. platform. Yeah. Where are you into the whole managed market phenomena? I mean, we, we have some managed marketplaces in our portfolio. Um, so like I would think of booster fuels, probably closer. I don't, I don't even know if I want to call it a marketplace, but they deliver gas on demand, right? So that we hire, I mean, people don't even bring their own trucks. So maybe that's not an example, but I think there's a, definitely a place for managed marketplaces, but the difference being that your margins are going to look really, really different. Yeah. Right. And so that's what we're seeing right now in the public markets. Yeah. Um, so you have to make it a volume or what, what? In the Uber and the Lyft's case, like they have tons and tons of volume, but it's hard to make up for. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I got to yeah. think about that. That's a good question. How do yeah. you make up for that? I, I'm just broader question of, I mean, you wrote that deep dive in what? 2016, 2017? Mm-hmm. A few years ago. Uh, I don't even think we were talking about managed marketplaces back then. I know. I, I see your piece is sort of the second coming of Bill Gurley's piece, or your own version, of course, but like the definitive piece that Bill Gurley wrote in yeah, 2011, like 10, yeah, 10 things, 2012, yeah. and you you expanded on him, had your own comment on him a little bit. Like, what would the 2020 version look like in terms of what would be different or additional, or what have we learned as an industry? Yeah, we we're actually on in the process of putting together notes okay. for that, but it's it's definitely the the evolution of a marketplace, right? Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of SaaS based marketplaces yeah. or, or market networks. Yeah. I guess you would say that's one category. SaaS based marketplaces. Did I already say that? Yeah, that's fine. SaaS based. Okay. SaaS based marketplaces, market networks and um, managed marketplaces. Right. Yeah. And I think there's, we alluded to a little bit to this, but also things that are like the decentralized marketplace. Now we have, yeah. we, we have crypto and blockchain coming up to really, um, create new platforms that we didn't even think were possible, right? Yeah. So I think this the next edition is going to have to include all these new innovative business models. Yeah. And wh- uh, what's interesting about SaaS-based marketplaces or, or market networks that's, that's worth covering? I think mo- a lot of SaaS-based marketplaces start, uh, obviously, because they're SaaS, right? But a lot of the SaaS companies that we talk to, in order for them to think about defensibility or building a moat, they then start to think about the marketplace yeah. piece, right? Because there's network effects there, whereas it's not very clear where network effects might be in SaaS alone. Yeah. And so I think that's why people have that affinity towards SaaS-based marketplaces. Or, so that's one area. Or um, in services marketplaces, where we talk a lot about um, off-platform transactions. Yeah. I think that building tools to keep the supply engaged means that they are way less likely to disintermediate. 
right? So I think there's, I think the SaaS based marketplace approach is is reactive to to two trends, right? If you're if you're SaaS, you're looking for differentiation or not differentiation, but defensibility. And if you are a marketplace where there is risk for disintermediation, you're building SaaS to keep people on the platform. Yeah, totally. How about uh, market networks? I can't think of a really good example of a market network right now. I think that's yeah. very conceptual still. Yeah. Boris and I were just talking about this, but I don't have a. To be honest, I don't haven't. I haven't really thought much about like what's a good example. In theory, yeah. it makes more sense, but I can't think of one that has seen the same kind of. Um, yeah. What's changed in terms of how entrepreneurs should be thinking about building building marketplace or some of the principles? There are just fewer and fewer opportunities to build like to like building building a marketplace is really like a winner takes all market. Yeah. Like the, when we look at the success stories. So it just seems at least on the consumer side, there's less and less opportunities or like, you know, you really have to use your imagination yeah. as to what uh like what a huge consumer marketplace might be. And I think I, that this is why I get, you know, the whole unbundling of Craigslist is a really funny thing to me because everyone uses the example of like, Oh, Airbnb as part of the unbundling of Craigslist. But I would argue that Airbnb wasn't even a massive category. Like, you know, the whole idea of shared rooms wasn't even a massive category and they created their own category. They created their own market. So I think on, on for consumer marketplaces, as a founder, I would think about like, what new, completely new behavior yeah. am I going to create? Because yeah. I just don't really think that there's much to unbundle. Right. But everyone's strategy has been, let's unbundle Craigslist. Yeah. Right. So I think, so I think that's what's interesting. And then on the B2B side, I get excited about, I think there's definitely opportunities in these old, you know, industries where there's a lot of trade happening, but everything is kind of done because I know this person or that person, there's no price transparency, whether it's in mining, whether it's in forestry, recyclable metals, the list just goes on and on. And I think there are fun or not fun, but they're fun to me, right? Interesting opportunities there. Um, But again, we have to go back to the question of how can you capture the value of that transaction? Right. Because the, because why would they want to pay through your platform? Yeah. Yeah. On the consumer side, are there new behaviors that you're particularly intrigued by or that if you were building a marketplace, you'd be like, oh, maybe yeah. I'd, I'd look here to see if, uh, if something mm-hmm. is interesting. When I have, this isn't exactly marketplace, but yeah. it goes back to healthcare is yeah. like there's Strava that's for running. I'm curious if they could do something similar for like nutrition yeah. or sleep even. Like could you make sort of social networks around healthy behaviors or habits yeah i think there's probably an opportunity there because people need to be egged on and like (laughs) no one can do anything on their own hey that's why like i really think that's why these like berries and soul cycle and all these things just just proliferated because it's so funny i think i don't think people like to work out by themselves but they also like people people don't want to work out by themselves and they also want to blend in yeah. <laughs> like they don't want to be seen yeah. so it's like the perfect combination yeah that's a great description i went to barry's for uh four times a week one year and oh I, my goodness yeah i was like i'll never do a, a, a gym or anything else. just not only did i i didn't want to be seen i also just didn't want to think about it yeah 
And so just the yeah, instant like plug and play. When, when, when you, most people struggle with a few things in the gym, right? It's like motivation, not looking dumb. And what do I yeah, do? Yeah. It's, like, it's motivation. So people, people need help with either motivation, knowledge, structure. Yeah. Right. And for me, I need structure because yeah. I don't, I, I don't want to think. Right. And that, that, that's why berries is good for me. But I think yeah. the, why, why it was like, so I did the, I bought like a three pack for berries mm. for $50 at Black Friday. And I finally just used three of them. And then I thought Sunday was my last day. I was like, yes. And I'm like, I like the idea of working out with others, but I, I, and I don't want all the attention, yeah. but I don't want no attention because <laughs> I think I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. And then just as I was, I was like, okay, at least I'm done. I'm, I completed yeah. this task. And then I walk out. And they're just like, hey, we know you're done your th three pack. Do you want to come back for four more for $20 each class? And they got you. And they got me. <laughs> That's funny. They're so good. Yeah, they're yeah. so good at this because they really know how to pull the strings. Of... And they're so smart. Like they knew it was my third class. So they even wrote notes for the instructor to call me out during the class. So I'm on the treadmill and she called out, Angela, you look great. Like you can push that to a nine. You could push that to a 10. She called me out, but it was amazing because it was the first time I got attention, but she wow. knew it was just enough attention. That's funny. Yeah. And that's why they, uh, yeah, they've got to they get us to pay a crazy upsell. So you're not doing it anymore. Uh, I do it once every month, maybe. Yeah. They, they know that they can't get me anymore. Like on a regular cadence. It's uh, really expensive. Oh yeah. Totally. And, and I really, actually, there is something to be said about being afraid that I'll hurt myself Yeah. because you, like all the outside the treadmill, but like all the movements are yeah. dangerous if you don't have a professional yeah. watching your move, right? Totally. So, speaking of social, you wrote sort of the social guide a couple mm -hmm. years ago or so. Have you done anything in social since, or is there anything consumer social that you're particularly interested in or intrigued by? I would say, like, after we wrote the book on social, we quickly realized that every social platform that has scaled is a unique. Yeah. Butterfly. Mm. It is not like a marketplace where you have supply, demand, and an intermediary, and you can pull certain levers and turn different knobs to get it to scale. Like there, yeah. there seems like there's a, a, a recipe right. that will work for a consumer. And we talked about B2B. They're not being actually the case in right. a B2B case. There might, it might just actually be that every B2B marketplace is its unique butterfly. Right? right. But in social, that's what we realize. Like the success of a LinkedIn versus a Facebook versus a Twitter versus an Instagram, all very different. So I think yeah. the purpose of that book was to really say, Hey, there is no formula. Um, but having said that there's definitely, I don't think socials, dead i think that yeah. social is just going to exist in new platforms right like vr and ar yeah um which would be exciting to see you know so yeah. i think you know there's there's definitely opportunities totally. and we had talked about patient social networks i think yeah. there's there might be specific verticals where it makes more sense yeah and on the marketplace side i had sarah tavel and nabil on the podcast and they were talking yeah. about i think sarah was saying Hey, you should go more for liquidity than, than growth or people underestimate the importance of liquidity. And to be able to say, Hey, you should make sure you really look at net revenue, you know, not just GMV or over yeah. GMV. How do you think about what metrics are most important to be, um, really taking attention to or trying to, you know, uh, boost? 
I think in, in working with so many marketplaces, I think the biggest oversight is when we just focus on one side for so long. And, and, you know, we always, we do this too. We always preach, Hey, it's all about the supply. And then we kind of forget about demand. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's about like, in order to build that flywheel, you got to build a little bit of supply and then get a little bit of demand. And then you build a little bit more supply and a little bit Mm -hmm. more demand. Right. But you have to almost think about them both simultaneously. One is not more important I mean, sometimes one is more important than the other, but not always. Totally. So it's probably for me more the liquidity piece right. than it is anything, anything else. And how you measure liquidity, you know, for me, it'd be like the, the kind of the rapidness to make a connection, right? Like how quickly can you make that? Are you satisfying both supply and demand? Can they find each other in an efficient manner? Yeah. And can they find each other again <laughs> or different connections? Yeah. What are examples of, of spaces that maybe haven't yet had a big win, but you think might in the future? Um, an example, I'd, I, in, in particular marketplaces, but maybe elsewhere, for social, I'd give something like, hey, Yik Yak or is anonymous apps have always not yeah. worked. But I think someone's going to figure out some version of pseudonymous or anonymous or <laughs> location based or audio like, you know, that hasn't worked out, but someone's going to figure that out. Um, in marketplace, maybe, you know, fitness marketplaces haven't, haven't seemed to work out, like personal trainers and what are versions for you that you think? I think fitness definitely is, is an interesting one. I also think like a true food marketplace yeah. is, is fascinating. So we've seen like the kitchen surfing mm, and like yeah. we, we've invested in this category too. Um, there was Josephine, yeah. Umi Kitchen, um, the whole idea of everyone being their own chef. Right. And cooking for other people who can't because there's clearly demand for right. people who everyone eats. Right. And there yeah. are certain families that are just so, so busy. And then there's a whole bunch of people who have the time yeah. and the talent to be able to cook. So I think that that's one opportunity yeah. because it's something that we do every single day. Right. And why haven't, hasn't it worked? Is it unit economics or and what, what could change or something? A couple of things. I think, you know, the, in, in the very early days, like, with Gobble, for example, which was, and we've done, and we invested in Umi Kitchen, which was very similar. The whole idea is, you know, it's, someone would cook at home, they would offer it, and you would order the food just like you would order on Uber Eats, right? But the logistics were just so expensive. So back in the day, you would have to hire your own drivers to go to, you know, Eric's house to deliver food to Angela, right? And then the food would always would just be like takeout; it would be super cold. You got to reheat it. It'd be homemade, but it would still have the characteristics of takeout food that are not pleasant, which is cold. (laughs) So that model, I think it was just like unit economics weren't good. The quality of the food wasn't that great either. And I think that regulation is also an issue too, because being able to cook in your own kitchen when it's not commercial grade is not allowed. (laughs) Um, but all these things are starting to lift, right? It's, it's going to get easier to deliver this food, but then it just becomes a question from like, from a home to a, um, to a diner. But then the question is like, how do you solve for that quality of that food? Right? So we invested in a company in Florida that just says, why don't we just put the chef in the home, Yeah. like directly in the diner's home and let's not make it super fancy where the chef is serving. Yeah. Um, and there for three hours, let's have the chef bring the groceries in, cook the meal within an hour, serve it fam, like put it on family style, like serve it family style on your own plates and leave. Yeah. 
right? For the price of restaurant, right? So now you solve the logis- the the logistics of going out and it's healthier and warm and it's better than takeout. Yeah. Right. Wow. Would you ever do one of these cloud kitchen businesses or how do you? Cloud kitchens are fascinating to me. And I think that, that they are the future. Yeah. Like I think say more. What's so interesting about them or why? They... What's so interesting about them? I think that most people, so I think that, uh, the cost of food delivery, like just the cost of food delivery is just so expensive. And a part of it comes with like the labor that's involved. But a lot of the food that people are ordering are things that we can assemble with not even robots. It's like an assembly line. When you yeah. think about the number of different kinds of bowls we eat, whether it's like a poke bowl or an SIE bowl yeah. or a salad bowl, noodle bowl, all that, all that stuff can just come down a conveyor belt, right? Yeah. And can be prepared and it doesn't, it doesn't matter where. So I think like what's fascinating about that is when you automate that, it makes things cheaper. Yeah. I just, I just think that like, that's the future. Right. Right. And then it actually makes room for all these people who, who don't like doing the, like those kitchen jobs, right. To allow them for room to do like more creative things. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like the automation of anything. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of the many things that we bonded over the years is, uh, is our appreciation for the Toronto Raptors. You're a Toronto Raptors super fan. I'm just a, a mere hobbyist. Um, and we really bonded over the, uh, Kawhi Leonard NBA finals run. How are we looking this year in a post Kawhi era? Where is your optimism? How do you think about the Raptors? What are you doing if you're the GM? Talk to oh, us. Wow. It's a strong start to the season, I would say. It's a it's an incredible start yeah. to the season. Pascal really uh Pascal, you know, we I think we won 15 16 straight, which is a Canadian sports record. Wow. Right? Incredible. Um hey, listen, like I I'm the biggest Raptors fan, but even I was like I was pleasantly surprised yeah. by how well we did um without well, how well we've been doing without Kawhi. I think my prediction is we're going to make it to the conference finals. Wow, that's a big prediction. Yeah, we're going to make it to the conference finals. Giannis is going to be a roadblock. Yeah. So it's going to be a repeat of last yeah. year's conference finals. Which was a hell of a run. Down 2-0, winced for yeah. straight. <laughs> oh my God. I remember I remember texting my brother, who lives in Ottawa, but he's also a big Toronto fan. And uh, before the series even started, he's like, Giannis in five. And I said, <laughs> Raptors in six. Oh. Like, You're crazy. So, yeah. But after we beat, and, and I think if we, so I think we'll make it to the conference finals. I, I have to see how we do in terms of injuries and all that stuff, whether or not we can keep up with the, with the Bucks. Um, and then coming out of the West, I, well, I think it's going to be the two LA teams yeah. fighting with, with each other. Probably Lakers are a little bit more deeper. Yeah. And they beat the Bucks. And, and, hey, and they beat the Bucks. <laughs> and I, the Raptors run last year might be the best run of all. Like it's one of the most. I don't know. It's just they were not favored to win. Clearly, yeah. I mean, they. It reminded me a lot of the Pistons. Yeah. Um. When the Pistons won in two thousand four. Four. <laughs> yeah. Four. Yeah. You're right. I don't know. I think the NBA is just super exciting right now. Yeah. We've seen the dismantle of super teams. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I just. I can't, I can't ask for anything more right now. I remember when I saw this sort of two minute video of who's the short little chubby guard who I like so much. Oh, oh, um, you have two of them. Kyle Lowry, Lowry. the other one, the other one, the other one. Oh, Fred Van. Yeah. Fred Van. (laughs) When he was Fred Van Fleet, he was giving this video where he didn't get drafted. Maybe you showed it to me. Yeah. And he's 
he hosted a draft party when he didn't get drafted at the end of the night he's like i'm gonna work hard like i'm yeah. gonna make it and i started just bawling because he he really just played his heart out and proved that he's he lost a tooth oh my god I remember that <laughs> oh he's so fun to watch i mean he's the, the so, whole team. yeah that whole team is just a lot to it's just a lot of fun to watch and just been has been such a gift to the city honestly and i think the city's gonna done a good job welcoming them and and yeah. being super grateful, right? Totally. And it's it's so funny. It's almost like it never happened. It yeah. happened, but it just like... <laughs> it happened so quickly, right? It happened so quickly. And then Kawhi left one year, he's yeah. out. Yeah. And But I think they've done a classy job appreciating Kawhi post, too. We still do. Yeah. I'm still going to wear my Kawhi jersey. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to tear up. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, Angela, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. So this has been a great, me, great right? episode. And if, if you enjoyed uh, what you hear... Uh, I highly recommend uh, doing deep dives into into the version one blog and, and a lot of Angela's work. Uh, what's the URL to that? Uh, version one dot VC. Awesome. And do follow Angela on Twitter as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. dot